Thoughts Podcast. I'm Pastor Rebecca. And I'm Pastor Chad. And today we are going to discuss uh, in, in terms of salvation, who's in and who's out. Who fills up the bus. That's right. Who fills up the bus. You talked a little bit about that in your sermon this, this weekend. And the reason we're, we're talking about this, well, number one, we actually had somebody come to us and ask for uh, the possibility of talking about what happens to their atheist friend who is essentially a good person but doesn't believe in any of this God stuff, and so are they, they doomed for hell? Yeah. And that's a, that, I think that's an age-old question that we hear a lot. Um, both, I, I, You know what? Funny, I don't think our atheist friends really care what the answer is to that question. No, well, um, they don't believe it in it anyway. they don't believe it in it anyway. <laughs> but it's something that, I, that we as Christians, I think, preoccupy ourselves a lot with. I think sometimes with really good intentions. So in this case, I have this friend, and they're a really good friend, and they're a great person, but they don't believe they're going to go to hell. And then I think there's that other side of it that is like, well, they're going to hell because they don't believe. And maybe some, I don't want to say take pride in it, but I think there's that in and out versus, you know, I really care about this person, and I care about their, what happens to them in eternity. Well, and, you know, one of the things that always strikes me about our... The, the Christian message, as far as that that's concerned, is that if we've reduced the Christian message to believe or burn, which is essentially is... Turner burn is my favorite. Oh, Turner, Turner burn. burn. Turner burn, okay. I, I've, I've always heard believe or burn. Uh, if you, you, you either believe or burn, is that really the message of the gospel? Not for me. I mean, that's that, that's kind of where where I, I land on that too. Is I'm like, wait a minute, I don't I don't think that's the the good news message. And especially when we we touched on this very briefly when we were talking about suicide, yeah, and discussing kind of what hell was, what it wasn't, and I, I think maybe revisiting that a little just just to kind of highlight a couple of things. First of all recognizing that when you're reading scripture, things like the words Hades and hell are not synonymous. Yep. Hades is the realm of the dead. The Greek realm of dead is very much like Sheol in the Old Testament. Hell really is never mentioned um, in the Old Testament other than to talk about the garbage dump, the Valley of Hinnom, which is in the Greek word, the term Gehenna. So again, that garbage dump idea uh, is kind of what hell is as opposed to the realm of of the dead, and I think we conflate those two, but I find it very interesting that when Jesus talks about hell, he's not warning the pagans. He's warning the religious leaders. So he's not going into the pagan world and saying, well, you either needed to believe in me or you're going to go to hell. Right. It was him confronting religious leaders and, and saying things along the lines of, uh, you know, if, if you're, you're right I offendeth, cut it out and throw it into, into hell. Or, and there's also the concept of, well, the gate is, you know, the, the gate is narrow. Yeah. You know, the, the, the road really to hell is... It's really hard to get in. Yeah, yeah, it's really hard to get in. Well, and actually, this, this coming weekend, one of the, it's the parable about the, the, the king's ban- banquet. Yeah. And at the end of that is many are called, few are chosen. Yes. And you're probably still working that one out. Oh, for your yes. <laughs> yes. So Can we, we w- edit that reading and cut that last part out? <laughs> Stay tuned. Dun, dun, dun. But, but there's also in, I think it is in Matthew 7, uh, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And of course, that's been used a lot to talk about, oh, well, see, only a few people are going to get to heaven while others are going to go to hell. Personally, I don't think that's what that's talking about at all. I don't either. I, you know, when I read that, the first thing that comes to my mind is, man, there are so many ways I can screw up. It's a highway of ways that I, can, that I can go wrong in my life. Well, when I think about that, I think about for Jesus, what were the gates? The gates probably were things like, I don't know, getting into Jerusalem. Yep. And there's another saying that kind of comes out where it says it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get in heaven. 
Well, there was an actual gate called the Eye of the Needle, and the only way you got your camel through it was you had to take all of the baggage off. So when I start thinking about, hey, here's this narrow gate, and people don't, it's hard to get through because of the fact you have to let go of all that baggage. You have to get all that stuff off of it. So like when he goes to the rich man and he tells, and the rich man, or I should say the rich man comes to him and says, what do I have to do to enter the kingdom of God? And he goes, well, give up everything and follow me. And the rich man turns away and he's very sad because he's not going to do that. Right. And I'm like, okay, Jesus had every opportunity to run after him and go, oh, it's okay, it's okay. What you believe is, is, is going to be fine. And he doesn't do that. So when I'm, I'm looking at the, the, the wide gate versus the narrow gate, I think it's kind of along the lines of clinging to worldly things that harm us rather than choosing a path that leads to life is kind of the reality of, of human nature that we tend to try to think of things of either you're alive or you're dead. And I think both for in, when Moses talked about things like choose life or choose death, he didn't mean, okay, if you're choosing death, go kill yourself. It was you are choosing a life that is, you know, it le- leads to, to death as opposed to eternal life kind of thing. And, and let's be honest, there are lots of ways you can choose that path, that unhealthy path, that, that, you know, the choosing death path, you know, and as you were as you were talking, I was thinking, okay, so let's just look at really simple decisions, and in terms of health, I'm not talking eternal health, but just in general health. Which would I rather eat, a salad, or a big fat bowl of ice cream? Man, give me that bowl of ice cream. Now, is that my salvation? No, but in terms of the healthy choice versus the unhealthy choice. I think we're, you know, in many ways we're pre-programmed to not always choose the healthiest course of action or the path of least resistance. Well, and it, it's kind of that idea of, again, getting back to you kind of have to shed that stuff before you can enter heaven. And if you continue to cling to it, well, you're not going to. And, of course, people will then say, well, who on earth would choose hell? Who, who would choose to stay in hell? And I'm like, have you looked around? Yeah. Oh, People choose hell every day, um, whether, you know, it's, it's addictions, whether it's, uh, you know, habits, ways of life, whatever it is. People grab hold of that, and they, and, and they really are basically choosing a hell on earth, so to speak. And they, they get so caught up and so mired, and, and, and maybe it's vengeance or something along those lines, and it's just that, that kind of perpetual state. And I think what Jesus is calling us to do is he's calling us to live the kingdom life now. Amen. Yes. <laughs> Amen. Live Amen. the kingdom life now because, I, and, and now. This because is, it gives life. It does. And it gives life now. And I, I get, I, this is something else I said, I mentioned on Sunday. I get so, so frustrated. Not, not that eternal life isn't important. It truly is. But we are so sometimes so fixated on that that we forget that we actually have a life to live here that can make a difference for not just ourselves, but, but for everybody around us. We, we can actually do that now. That, and again, it's that kingdom of, of, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Is it a, is it a now or a not yet? Yes. And the answer is yes. <laughs> the answer yes. is yes. But we set, we tend, I think we tend to focus so much on, on the not yet part of it that we forget about the now. And maybe I'm just guilty because I don't really think a whole lot about the afterlife portion of it. So I guess we can consider that a confession. I don't know if that's good or bad, but I, t- I tend to focus on you know, the, the current state of, of life or the current state of the kingdom of God. And you know, how can I help uh, just tug that kingdom of God a little closer here and now rather than... How can I make sure that I get that when I die? Mm-hmm. Well, and when I think about the, the, the tactic of, of going after people and saying, you know, you either need to believe this or, or you're going to burn. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, there's such a myriad of theologies out there that only the people who get the exact right theology you know, are going to somehow be the ones that get saved. It's sort of like, excuse me? That, that, that does become a very narrow gate. And... It also, for me, is selfish, is why do you believe? Are you believing so that you can save your own skin? 
Hmm. Is that is that the point of, of why you believe? Because you personally just you you want to escape the fires of hell or whatever. So you're believing for you. That to me is not the gospel message. Yeah, I haven't read that. Yeah, the the, the, <laughs> the, go- <laughs> the gospel message is the exact opposite, actually, kind of of that. It is about sacrifice. It's about, uh, in, in fact, release and deliverance is always about release and deliverance from brokenness, from sorrow, from harmful behaviors. Uh, slavery, suffering, physical maladies, sin, death, you know, it's the Isaiah 61, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, uh, proclaim freedom to the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners. So redemption, at least as far as Jesus is concerned, has always been about the present, the past, and the future, and not just heavenly issues, but earthly issues, that, that it's dealing with with things here and now, but also in the future. And so I'm, I'm thinking maybe that instead of worrying about who's going to hell, who's not, maybe we need to worry more about the current state of the human heart. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, honestly, I think we would be further along um, a healthier society. Talk about health and life and death. We would be a healthier society if we cared more about that than, than what happens when we die. You were, you were talking a second ago about your belief dictating, I believe in this, therefore this is where I end up. Um, Rob Bell, as you know, wrote a book a number of years ago called Love Wins. Um, controversial book. Very. Um, very controversial book. Although I think a lot of the people who criticized it hadn't <coughs> actually read it, to be quite honest. Yeah, that's possible. That happens a lot, too. Um, same thing with scripture. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so one of the things that struck me to this book and I, with this book, and I read it, right after it came out. And basically his premise for writing the book and what sort of kickstarted him writing the book was overhearing a conversation um, about Gandhi being in hell. Now Gandhi, you know, the Gandhi pacifist, you know, just one of the most admired people in, in history. And there's a conversation in which he overheard, which the person definitively, definitively declared that Gandhi is going, that Gandhi's in hell. And that sort of got him thinking, um, and, and the impetus to write this book, this is, wait a minute. So Gandhi, someone that, you know, if we all, you know, I think we could all aspire in many ways to, to live our life like Gandhi. A reader of the Beatitudes was Gandhi. So he had, you know, he wasn't completely ignorant of Christianity either. But to the notion that that guy isn't in heaven, he's in hell, because he's not Christian. Right. And that's a struggle. That's a, that's a struggle. Yeah. Well, and if, uh, speaking of Rob Bell, I happen to have a quote here from him. Perfect. Yeah. Not a planned segue. No, it was not. But uh, I have a quote from him that says, Jesus did not use hell to try and compel heathens and pagans to believe in God so they wouldn't burn when they die. He talked about hell to very religious people, okay, I talked about that already, to warn them about the consequences of straying from their God-given calling and identity to show the world God's love. This is not to say that hell is not a pointed, urgent warning or that it isn't intimately connected with what we actually do believe, but simply to point out that Jesus talked about hell to the people who considered themselves, quote, in, warning them that their hard hearts were putting their inness at risk, reminding them whatever chosenness or election meant, whatever special standing they believed they had with God, was always only ever about their being the kind of transformed, generous, loving people through whom God could show the world what God, God's love looks like in flesh and blood. I always thought that was a very compelling state. And that whole idea of having it be about the, the transformed, generous, loving people through whom God could show the world. When I think about this, I think about a good friend of mine who lives in Ohio, who is... I don't know if you call her an atheist, an agnostic maybe, something along those lines. But anyway, she was one day at her work handed a pamphlet that basically told her she was going to hell. So on social, me- social media one day, she posted a picture of the pamphlet and, and this little sad face and said, well, apparently I'm going to hell. And Boo-hoo. yeah, and I... I almost wanted to cry because I was like, really, that's the message that, that we're, to, that's showing the love of God is to go hand pamphlets to people telling them, oh, by the way, because you don't follow X, Y, and Z, you're going to hell. <laughs> so I've heard, I've heard that, I've heard that explained, I've had that explained to me in the past as we care so much for you and your salvation 
that we're going to call out all of your sinful ways so that you can turn before you burn. Back to the turn or burn. Um, and I, 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 I struggle. Not that I don't believe that we as people of faith should condone um, any activity whatsoever. Oh, go do this and it's great. Um, you can do whatever you want and I'll be hunky-dory. Yeah, and I mean, I take sin very seriously, um, and, and I think people sometimes when we start talking about this are like, oh, well, you just aren't taking sin seriously then if you're not doing this, and I'm like, no, I see it everywhere. It causes death, it causes heartache, it causes grief, it, it causes sorrow, it does cause separation from God, um, it separates us from each other, it makes us question our self-worth, uh, it makes us hate when we should be loving and it leads to things like the new zealand massacre yeah and then that takes us down that next road of of the number of people who probably are convinced that th those muslims who died are going to hell and well muslim you know islam is a religion of hate and violence and who who put that will put that label on islam have never opened the quran or have, have cherry-picked a verse or two and said, see, see, this is what we're called to. Now, if you've taken Pastor Rebecca's um, Bible study on the Old Testament, I'm pretty sure you came away with the understanding that the Old Testament is extremely violent. Um, <laughs> because guess what? It is. The Old Testament is extremely violent. There are parts of Christianity, parts of, parts of the Bible, that you can pull and you can cherry-pick it really does not paint the Christian faith in a very good light. That paints it in a violent light. So you know, many people who, who want to put that label, pin that label to our brothers and sisters of, of, of Islam, oh, yeah, the, the, get, broaden your perspective a little bit, I think. Um, you know, yes, yes, our, our, our hateful harmful, violent acts committed in the name of Islam. Yes, they are. Well, and, and, and in the name of Christianity, let's just call a spade a spade. Well, I can tell you right now that, that, that I'm sure there was probably an element of white Christian nationalism that was right. a part of, part of that shooting. And one of the things, though, that I, I always come back to is, you know, Jesus said there really, you know, there, there was no, no unforgivable sin. Um, the only for unforgivable sin was blaspheming the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit um, or to reject God's work, to reject God's liberating love and freedom. And so the question being, when you stand face to face with God who offers that liberation from sin, death, sorrow, and pain, and you still say no, okay, you know, then, and, and God's worst form of judgment is always to say, have it your way. Right. I, I mean, that's, that's what he did with the Israelites when they were like, give us a king. He's like, this is a really bad idea. You don't want to do this. And they went, no, we really do want to do this. And he said, okay, what you're doing okay. is really horrible and evil, but you know what? I'll give you a king. Here you go. And they got King Saul. That didn't work out so well, just like God said it wouldn't. But it's kind of one of those things where, and again, when they didn't want to go into the promised land, and God kept saying, no, go, I'll be with you. It'll be fine and whatever. And they're like, no way, we're not going in. He finally said, okay, you don't want to go in? You're not going in. I, I mean, it, be careful because God will give you sometimes what you want. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not necessarily good for you. But I also think about the fact that God, uh, the Lamentations 3.31, it says, For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. And that... God's desire for our lives and for our futures in both this life and the next is that he bears patiently with you, his desire being that no one should perish, but that all should come to repentance and that kind of thing, is that God is always wanting people to, to come to him um, and, and to be a part of that loving relationship. And I don't think he gives up on anybody. Ever. I hope not. Yeah. I, I, I hope not. And, and I, think, I think that is compatible. Um, you know, so 
every, nearly every church, I don't know that I've seen it here yet, um, has the picture of Jesus with the sheep slung over his shoulder. Mm-hmm. You know, that, you know, the parable of the lost sheep and leaving the 99 to get, I, I, I don't see in scripture where, you know, there, there's this notion of, well, okay, I'm done. I'm done with you. Yeah. So carry on. I'm done with you. Look at, you know, we're, we're working on our Holy Week um, stuff right now as, as Easter and, and the Easter season approaches. And one of the most powerful lines, and I, I don't think that I, I picked it up before, at least it didn't smack me in the face like it has this year, is Jesus, Jesus referring to Judas as friend. Yep. Oh my God, the guy that like literally says, here, give me some silver and uh, you can have your dude and kill him, it's okay. I, for, I don't know how I've missed that. You know, that, that one, that one, so powerful. Jesus refers to Judas as friend. Yep. Literally. Even during the, in the midst of the betrayal. Yeah. When he's giving, you know, Judas has given him a kiss on the cheek. Jesus says, do what you've come here to do, friend. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where our, our ability and our wanting to put parameters around where, where God is going to be gracious um, and, and who God is going to have mercy on, you know, is really for me, kind of the, the difficult part. Plus, we have this notion that, you know, you go to hell, that's, that's it, you're, you're done. And what I found very interesting is that, that actually the word for eternal life and the word for, quote, eternal hell are not the same. The, the two words being used for eternal, not the same. Well, first of all, in the, in the Hebrew, the word olam is used by Jonah uh, to describe how long he spent in the belly of the whale. And literally it says is that he spent forever, which for Jonah's case, of course, was three days. But man, <laughs> if you're inside of a whale, that had to seem like forever. Had to seem like forever. But um, there, in the Greek then, when you get into the Greek, there's you know a couple different words. There's aeon, um, that means forever as an age from the beginning, world order. Um, and yes, can get translated as eternal, but the word that is really used for eternal is aeonios, uh, which is eternal of quality rather than of time, an unending, everlasting for all time. So I did a search because I'm that person. Yeah, you are. I am. I did a search to see where aeon was used and where aeonios was used. And the Aeonios is used in reference to eternal fire only once, and it's the time where Jesus talks about cutting off your limb and throwing it into the eternal fire. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, every other single reference to hell or fire or destruction uses the more limited Aeon, um, which does not necessarily mean eternal. It can mean the, you know, kind of the three days kind of thing or for a particular period of time. And Aeonios is utilized over and over again to describe eternal life. So the eternal life reference is using the much more expansive, ongoing quality on and on and on. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Because I'm the geek that does that. Yeah, you are. And I'm glad one one of us is. Um, I don't know that that my mind would have gone there. So uh, honestly, that's not true. My mind goes there occasionally, but then it's like, okay, but do I... We have the resources to go back. You know, my, I wish I still had my BibleWorks software up and running. Because I did this on BibleWorks. I love BibleWorks. Is like, BibleWorks is like Bible geeky stuff for non-Bible geeky people. So I, I, that way you don't have to translate it yourself. You can cheat and use the, use the, use the, com, use the uh, computer software, which I love. That's how I survived Greek in, in seminary. Thank you to the creators of BibleWorks. Well... And I think the next question, though, is so, okay, so we've kind of gone through all this. So does what I believe matter? Yes. Why? Yes. So for me, I want to go back to the stop worrying about eternal life and worry about life now. And if you don't think that the way we treat people, the way that we interact, the way we engage, yada, 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 makes a difference, then, ah, wow. I, I, I have a hard time imagining a life where people, my life where people haven't made a difference in it, whether it's your kids, mm-hmm. your spouse, a coworker, a, you know, a teacher, you know, the guy at the grocery store, the, you know, the person that, you know, asks you how you are when you're having a crappy day and you, you just need a hug or whatever. 
I, I just have a really hard time imagining that that doesn't make a difference. And I think you know, the ripple effect is that in the end, one, it makes this life here less hell-like um, and more like the kingdom of God. And when we do die and we do enter that eternal life, that it's, uh, I don't know what it is. <laughs> um, I, you it, well, I, I guess the way kind of, I'm, I'm along the same lines you are. I'm going to take it just a slightly different tactic, though. People believe all, all sorts of things. And in particular, they believe all sorts of things about God and about themselves. So, yes, what you believe matters. What you believe about God matters because that's, that's going to define your relationship with God yeah. and, and who and what you think God is. And, and in turn, that defines your relationship with others. Exactly. And not to go always back to him, but, but I, there was a really good illustration Rob Bell used about the sons in The Prodigal Son, both having mm. their view of events. And both, both believe something about their father and their situation. One feels unworthy because of what he's done, and he's just hoping that, that the father will bring him back in. The other one is feeling resentful and angry because his father is showing so much mercy. Now, the whole thing is, is that it's, well, why are you being angry about, you know, you've gotten your inheritance, you know, you've already, you, you've been here the whole time, you've been getting all this kind of goes back to what you were talking about this weekend about not being enough room on the bus it's like look you've already got this why do you care you know why are you so upset and he winds up in the corner basically not enjoying himself and being and basically putting himself in his own little hell because he wants to be mad because god isn't acting the way he wanted god to act yeah and it didn't seem fair to him or something so, so, along those so, lines. So Garth Brooks, well, we're like all culture stuff today. So Garth Brooks wrote a song a long time ago, you know, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Mm -hmm. And at the time, that was kind of in my not really churchy phase. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. But that song is, is just the title of it is so meaningful because we have our idea of what God should do and how we want God to act and who we want God to act on in what fashion. And sometimes... That's really not what's best. But we don't realize that until, you know, sometimes 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road go, oh, if that had happened, then this wouldn't have happened or, or if that had vice versa. So I think sometimes we have to understand that we don't always want what's best for us no. or huh. um, often we don't want what's best for we, what We think. We think. Yeah, we, right, we right. We think us. We think that, that X is what's best for us, and God's like, yeah, I think Y is a better course of action. And we, we think we need a king, and God's going, I'm, right. no, you don't. okay, but all right. And, and I think it also comes down to, you know, that, that view of God again. Can we trust God's unfailing love for us? Or do we trust a version of the story that says, if you don't believe exactly the right things in exactly the right way, God's going to punish you forever. Isn't there a Jesus? Are, there's, a, there's two very different views of, of God there, and... I think a lot of people reject the vision of God and Jesus that says, if you don't believe and do all the right things, you're out. And I think that's yeah. the vision of God that people are rejecting. They're rejecting our presentation of God and Jesus. And, you know, basically, if we spent too much time presenting God as an abusive parent who tosses people into an eternal fire of torment when they don't step exactly right or don't believe the right thing or when they misunderstand the message that we Christians have been entrusted with. You know, Jesus tells his disciples, the world's going to know you by, by how you love one another. And so the question is, how did Jesus love his disciples? And the answer for me is, well, they were loved despite their inability to grasp who he was. <laughs> over and over again, even if they got the words right, like said, oh, you're the Messiah, they still, like the next, the, the next paragraph, we're messing it up. I, I always refer to the disciples, especially as Mark, Mark's gospel portrays them as the duh disciples, because yeah. over and over <laughs> and over again, they just don't get it. Yeah. So as you, as you were saying that, um, quoting that piece of scripture where you know, we will be known by how we love, mm -hmm. I think the tragedy in all of this is that so often now Christians are known by how they hate right. or what how they don't, don't love yeah. or they don't accept. 
and, and it's tragic. And if you look at just about any survey on the view of Christianity today, it's you know, hypocritical, judgmental, and loving is not on that list. You know, loving is not on that list of, of people, especially non-Christians in their view of Christianity. So if, if we're supposed to be known by how we love, we're missing the mark big time, big time. And that's sad. It's, tra- it's tragic. It's not just sad. It's tragic that, you know, this, Christ commands us to love and, and we will be known by our love. Yet, if you look at, you know, you ask society, that's not how the church is, is living out its mission. No. And, and like I said, in the way we look at how, how Jesus loved his disciples, um, he loved them when they displayed lack of faith. He loved them when they denied him, abandoned him, betrayed him, and let him suffer and die on the cross. I mean, that's Jesus' love. And, and that's how he, you know, and why are we imposing those limitations on Jesus' ability to love and forgive so much more so than Jesus himself imposed them? I yeah. mean, he, he's not putting those limits on, on how he loves. And so can we trust God's ability and will to forgive and love us even when we don't get it right. So what does this mean for Joe, Joe the atheist? Um, from my standpoint, sure. my standpoint, God will have mercy on who he will have mercy, and I trust God. Here's the thing. I have several friends who are atheists. I love those friends with every fiber of my being. They are wonderful people. I love them to death. If I can love them, I think God loves them. And if God loves them, that means, and and let's face it, God's love is a heck of a lot bigger than my love. And it is a lot more encompassing, and it is a lot more forgiving, and it's a lot more everything. And if I can love that person, I think God can love that person too. What about Joe the Muslim? Or Joe the Hindu, or Joe the, insert other religion here. Again, I love a friend who's Buddhist. I have a friend who's a Wiccan. I love her. So what about Muslims? Um, First of all, they are people of faith. Um, We may disagree on the importance and role of Jesus as a savior figure, but they are still people of faith. And how did Jesus respond to other people that were of a different faith. I mean, technically, the Samaritans, quote, had it wrong. Right. Yeah. Um, in terms we're really good at telling people how they have it wrong. Oh, very much so. Uh, you know, in terms of their understanding of God's covenant of Israel, they had rejected the Davidic covenant, um, which basically meant they had rejected Jesus and his claim uh, to, the, to the Davidic throne. So um, that was kind of the way in which that Jesus approached the Samaritan woman, she starts asking, well, am I doing it right? And he said, no. But, you know, the time's coming when, honestly, it doesn't matter. And and that's what makes the parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan so crazy and mind-blowing in that context. Yeah, exactly. Is that it's the the Samaritan who is doing the right thing as opposed to the the, Lev, uh, the Levitical priest. It just rolls and right just, by. Just rolls right on by. The person who should have been stopping was not the person who was stopping. The in person was not doing it. It was the person who was on the outside, who was doing that. And you know, yes, Muslims are quote post Jesus, as we might say. Um, and yes, they reject him as the Son of God. They do not view him as the divine uh, Son of God. Because in their view, God is too holy to have a son. That was a pagan thing. Um, for, for the quote to the gods to have children, God to have a child, that was kind of a pagan thing. That was not a Jewish thing, and that was not um, for Islam when they came along later. That was something they viewed God as not being able to, to do that because he was too holy. So their understanding is very different than ours, and there is no denying that. Can Jesus still love a Muslim? Yeah. Why not? Why not? I mean, I mean, you know, we're called to love, love your neighbor as yourself, um, and that is not the person living next door. 
It's not the person living across the street. There's no fine print that says, oh, well, except love your neighbor unless they're Muslim or unless they're fill in the blank with something you don't like, um, unless they're a ginger. Um, <laughs> or nothing wrong with gingers, let me just say that. I'm a ginger-ish. Um, but, you know, <laughs> there's, there's no fine print there. It's love your neighbor as yourself. Um, so could Jesus love a Muslim? Yeah, I would say yes, definitively yes. Well, I mean, I was like, well, did Jesus still, when he was on that cross, love the people that um, crucified him? Yeah. I mean, what did he say on that cross? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Yeah. I apply that to a lot. I apply that to a lot, too, because I'm thinking if I happen to be, you know, hanging on a cross facing my death, I... I highly doubt that I'm going to be gracious enough to forgive the person that put me there. Yeah. I would love to be able to say, as a person of faith, particularly a pastor, that oh, I would absolutely forgive. But come on, at that point, let's be honest, I, I don't think I have it in me. Yeah. And, uh, and Which is why Jesus is Jesus and we're not. We're not, yes, exactly. And I also look at scripture that, you know, what are we called to do to pray for those who are of other faiths, even those that we might perceive as enemies? And to be clear, I personally do not view Islam as an enemy, Me um, just, just to be clear. Um, and I even had a friend killed in 9-11, so I have a lot of reasons to not um, like or to um, hate Islam. And I still do not hold all of Islam accountable for the actions of a, a group. I get, I get more jumpy, more irritated at, you know, acts committed in the name of Christianity that are, that are counter-Christian. Um, and maybe that's because I'm a Christian, but I know for, for many of our Muslim brothers and sisters are very quick to speak out when, you know, someone um, of, uh, of their own religion acts in a way that is counter to their faith as well. Yeah. Well, and I recognize not only a radical fundamentalist Islamist, not a representation of all of Islam, but modern radicalized Islam was born out of a political environment that erupted post-World War One and Two, and that politics really shaped that religion and has shaped that 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 radicalization um, of how they have been how they've been treated, how things were cut up after World War One, how they you know paid no attention to tribal. Um, boundaries and things like that and the blood feuds and all of that kind of stuff which actually Muhammad was trying to stop Muhammad was the whole point was of Islam was that it was supposed to put an end to those blood feuds it did it didn't um, those still exist but that is not inherent of Islam that is inherent of a different cultural kind of issue that's going on there that just happens to be in predominantly Muslim areas right but if I did, for the sake of argument, if I did view Muslims as my enemy, um, and, and yes, I, I view terrorists as my enemy. I do. I, I, I think they are my enemy. I don't think Islam is. I think terrorists are. And terrorists is a, is a general term not associated with a religious belief. No. Um, got a lot of white national terrorists, as right. the New Zealand thing just proved. Right. Um, and as almost every terror attack we've had on U.S. soil, at least over throughout 2018, we're all white nationalists, um, white supremacists. But, okay, so they're, they're my enemy. How am I supposed to respond and treat to an enemy? Hmm, if there's only something in Scripture that told us. I wish. Oh, wait! I think there is. Nah, can't be. I think it's in there in a couple of places. Nah. I think there's love your enemies. You're crazy. Yeah. And then I think Paul says something about how you're supposed to pray for your enemies so that it's like you're heaping piles of burning coals or something along those lines. I can't remember exactly the, the phrasing of it, but it's not just love your enemies, but pray for your enemies. They didn't actually mean that, though. Okay, they really did. <laughs> I, I mean, there's, I, yeah, it's, it's I'm mind blown um, because we, it's so easy to forget those things. Yeah. Um, and it's so easy to hold on to grudges and baggage and, and such. Um, but Scripture repeatedly you know, tells us, you know, love your enemy, pray for your enemy, love your neighbor, pray for your neighbor. And we constantly, I guess it's just our humanity, we constantly 
what a fine, that fine print. And maybe that's because there's fine print in so many other things. Um, but there, there, there isn't. There, there just isn't. I've looked. And, and uh, believe it or not, Muslims are called to do the same thing. I know we focus on the, the uh, we like to focus on the, the texts that are violent. Yeah. But we kind of already, I think, covered a little bit about the how, well, we've all got violent texts if we really want to get down to it, and, you know, if we look at our Old Testament. Yeah. But Muslims, in the Quran, it states specifically that they are supposed to love their neighbors as well. They are supposed to. The death of any person, no matter what their religion, is supposed to be seen as um, an affront to all of Islam. They, yeah. have, they have those ideas, too. They have those ideas of 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 loving your neighbor we, so we often have you know, we are in the, in the lutheran church we have sacraments mm -hmm. in the muslim faith they have pillars and yes. one, of the, one of the pillars of islam is is giving mm -hmm. is charitable giving um, yes yes thank you i knew you would know the, i knew you would know the actual language because um, <laughs> that's who you are and that's why it works um and and I find it I, it's one of the f things I struggle with, you know. Some of the some of the pillars of Islam are not just remarkable, but just really deeply valued in in community. Yeah. In community. Yeah. So zakat and the pillars of Islam actually zakat calls for. You're supposed to tithe 2.5% of your assets, not your income. This is everything you own. Your house. I'm renting. <laughs> so you don't have to necessarily count that. But if you own a home, um, you own a car, you own a boat, you own whatever. If you have a savings account, you are supposed to tithe 2.5% of everything now. In a lot of ways, this is a little bit more just, I guess you might say, than what we do, which is the 10% no matter who you are and what you do. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if you're poor and you don't own those things, you don't own 2.5% of everything. You own 2.5% of just your income because you don't own anything. Right. Um, Interesting. So, yeah, there's, there's an, they, they have a different um, ethic as far as, as wealth goes that um, I'm not entirely sure I don't disagree with. I have so. to digest that. Yeah. I, I have, I did, I, so I did not know that. Um, I did not know that was part of, that was part of the deal. Um, I, yeah, I think I have to digest that a little bit. 10% yeah. of income versus 2.5% of, of your assets. Yeah. Interesting. And, Interesting. Yeah. and then, of course, you have all the other, um, the pillars. You've got the testimony, the shakha, the... Um, the uh, the salat, the ritual prayer, and then of course the khat. Then you've got um, the the pilgrimage, the hajj, and the the feast of Ramadan. Uh, and you're supposed to, you know, those those are all kind of requirements, uh, not necessarily uh, the same as sacraments, so to speak, but but they are requirements. Right. Maybe, maybe we don't mandate enough, and I, and I can't believe that I'm saying that, but you know, I look at what our, our qualifications are to be a member in our church, yeah. and the bar is so incredibly low. Um, put, you know, give an offering once every two years and commune once every two years. That's, your le that's the level of commitment that the baseline level of commitment yikes <laughs> yikes that's kind of scary yeah and so you know for me part of the question though is too then is is you know what is the benefit of having faith um if you know let, let's say okay well okay let's let's trust god so what what's the point what's the point of, of being a person of faith and for me it is you know about something wondrous already and we live, let's face it, we live in a very dark world. Not just today where it's rainy and cloudy. No, no, but, but metaphorically dark world. Yes. We live in a very dark world. And when we have a God who offers peace and prosperity, joy that's filled with things like no war, no pain, no sorrow, no greed, no injustice, I mean, it, it, it offers that hope and it gives you, and of course in, in Hebrews, what is hope, you know, the definition of hope and uh, 
11.1 is uh, faith is the uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Yes. And that to me has always been a pivotal statement about what is the purpose of faith, hope and assurance. In the face of things you cannot see. Right. And that you then have, instead of a future that's looking bleak, um, where the headlines you know, show us day after day horrors and atrocities and war and rebellion, senseless acts of violence, um, or global warming, historic droughts, floods, rising poverty levels, shaky economies. And you know, it's not too difficult to really get mired down in this whole idea that the world is headed for destruction. Nope. And I think a lot of people- It's in the headlines every day. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of people actually you know, have, have, have succumbed to that, that, that the world is headed towards. And so they take a kind of a, I'm just gonna sit back and let it happen uh, attitude course that isn't good either because then you're sitting back just saying oh well i'm just gonna let god take care of it and i'm not gonna do anything and i don't think god's that that's what god is calling us to do i think he's giving us a warning of saying hey if you keep going down this path (laughs) yeah the world will be destroyed but i'm not a god of destruction i'm a god of hope i'm a god of faith i'm a god who has a vision for a future for my people and i'm inviting you to participate in it and help bring it about and if we aren't out there helping to bring it about how is it going to happen I mean, yes, God's got to be involved in the process, or it's not, we can't do it on our own. We cannot do it on our own. But if you don't have the faith that, that God is going to be working in and through us, we're not going to be able to change things. The right. only way to change things is if you have the faith that God is going to work through us to make those changes happen. Yeah. So that to me is why we have faith. It, yeah. isn't, to, it isn't to save my skin from, from hell. It just, that's, that's to me not the reason I have faith. I have faith because I believe in God's vision of the future. Yeah. And, and it, I want to participate in that. And at some point we have to, as Christians, we should probably, you know, put a little stock into that whole cross thing. Um, you know, oh, you're now just talking crazy. I mean, hey, we, we show up, we have a cross at the front of the church. We have people that wear crosses around their neck. Every, I, th- that, that, is, that is not just... Um, a symbol that looks cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, for, for us as, as Christians, that cross should mean something. Um, and it doesn't mean death, and it, it, it doesn't mean destruction. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so I'm from Nebraska, and right now Nebraska's going through a lot of floods. Uh, like half the state's underwater. Yeah. And there was a picture that was floating around, and it was all you could see was the top of a church and the cross. Of course, there were a lot of people that were passing that around, and you know, and there was this one guy who commented who was just so angry that that picture was being passed around. He goes, "What? You're going to take a religious symbol like that, and you're going to then just say, oh, somehow God then caused this flood, and but oh, he's now going to make it better." And um, he said, "That's like, that's like the the abuse victim going, hey, look at my bruise that that God gave me. Isn't that awesome?" And I kind of went, whoa, back up, buddy. (laughs) Uh, uh, You know, I said, you know, to me, and of course, you know, this will give my own, where I stand on climate change and things like that, is I'm like, well, part of me looks at that, when I was looking at that cross, what it said to me symbolically was, here's your sin. Here's your sin. And your sin is that you have not taken care of the earth and this kind of catastrophe is gonna keep happening. And yet at the same time, while it said to me, here is your sin, it also said to me, and here is your hope. Yeah, and, and I, my, my guess is that the, the person that was deeply offended by that picture probably weren't catching that person on their best day. Probably not. Um, in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of pain, in the midst of heartache and sorrow. Let's, in, in, in those situations, we often are not at our best. No, sh- um, but ag- again, the, cr- the cross should be a symbol that rises above our pain and our sorrow and our heartache. Um, that says when we're not at our best, I gotcha. I yep. gotcha. Plain yep. and simple. Yep. The, 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 the cross is both a reminder of our sin, but also um, a reminder of how God has redeemed us from that sin. Yeah. Agreed. And so I, you know, it had that, that twofold meaning for me when I, when I was looking at it. 
But anyway, so to kind of wrap up, basically it's the, I, I just think as Christians, we, we need to have a different message than believe or burn. And, you know, whether you, you believe in a literal hell that people are going to be there forever and whatever, I, I still don't think that that's the, the way in which we approach, that, that wasn't the way Jesus approached it. I just don't think that's the way we should be approaching it either. I, I, I really feel that our way of approaching people is to show the love of Christ. And by, again, what did, what did Jesus do? It was healing the brokenhearted, healing the, you know, the sick and, and, and tending to those needs. And um, there are a lot of broken and hurting people out there and when Christians pile on the hurt, we're not helping. Yeah, we're, we're not living that love. Nope. And again, I just look at what, <laughs> how much did Jesus continue to love his disciples no matter what they did? And whether they had enough faith and whether, and even Judas, even Judas that he continued to call friend. You know, we don't, we don't know Judas's fate. We have no idea what happened to him after after he died, um, but I, you know, for a man who continued to call him friend even in the midst of his de- betrayal, says something. And the message to those hanging on the cross beside him. Yep. Today you will be with me in paradise. No fine print. Thanks for listening. If you have an idea you want to send to us. You can send it to ipccrackedpots at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.